Welcome to Talking in the Library, a platform for scholars to share the projects they're pursuing using the rich collections at America's oldest cultural institution, the Library Company of Philadelphia. The Library Company of Philadelphia launched the first biennial innovation award to recognize a project whose urgency renews disciplinary engagements with broader social issues, chafes against disciplinary boundaries, and whose content or forms might not be legible as scholarship within the university reward structure. In short, we wanted to do our small part to catalyze experimentation and adaptation in the humanities. Dr. Sari Altschuler and Dr. David Weimers touched this page, making sense of the ways we read embodies work that critically and creatively expands the possibilities of humanistic scholarship. Developed with a team of librarians, scholars, and engineers, Touch This Page reproduces tactile facsimiles of pages printed for blind or low-vision readers in order to make the experience of reading these books publicly accessible for the first time in over a century. Touch This Page not only enlivens issues of disability history through the widely shared experience of reading, but also illustrates how and why digital humanities projects must expand beyond visual forms. Notably, this project draws inspiration from the library company's collections and the 2016 Common Touch exhibition. Today, I welcome the co-recipients of our Innovation Award, Dr. Sari Altschuler and Dr. David Weimer. Sari Altschuler is Associate Professor of English, Associate Director of the Humanities Center, and Founding Director of Health, Humanities, and Society at Northeastern University. David Weimer earned his PhD in English from Harvard University and has been a librarian for the Cartographic Collections and Learning at Harvard Map Collections since 2016. Welcome to the library, David and Sari. Sari, what are we looking at? So this is a 3D scan um, of a page from a natural philosophy textbook. At the top, it reads Eclipse of the Moon in form that won't be familiar to most listeners. Um, it's a Roman letter raised print font called Boston Line Type. One of the things that's kind of neat about the font is that it's the product of a lot of debate and going back and forth um, between people who were trying to think about the best way to produce materials for readers who are blind and low vision, as well as for visual readers. So there's a sense that these objects are supposed to be kind of universally accessible. There's a real utopian sense that these pages could be read by basically anyone, and maybe that there could be a print form that would be accessible through touch, which is a more accessible sense than than sight, for example. This particular page is a little strange, uh, and that's part of the reason why we liked it and why we included it. So it says Eclipse of the Moon at the top, and it, it has basically two lines coming out from a single point on the left-hand side, and they essentially line the top and the bottom of three different circular structures. The first one that's closest to the point of origin says M for the moon. The next one says E for the earth. And then the one that's furthest out says sun. And one of the things that's kind of neat about this, you know, we think is that it's a very strange perspectival image because you're seeing the moon and the sun and the earth at the same time. It's actually supposed to represent the perspective of outer space, which is certainly in the 19th century is not a perspective from which anybody was looking. And so in, in some sense, we wanted images like 
this. These, this was originally an image and then is turned into a, a raised print form to really highlight the fact that that even people who are sighted readers are needing to kind of think imaginatively and use assistive technology um, to think about different kinds of things that are represented visually like this. Yeah, so this page uh, is from a book called The Rudiments of Natural Philosophy that was adapted from a textbook by Denison Olmsted by Samuel Gridley Howe for his students at the Perkins School for the Blind. The facsimile we and the model we have on the website touchthispage.com is just the top third of the page. Uh, the actual book is uh, about three times taller and, and quite thick. It's probably four inches in height uh, and then bigger than than the ink printed textbook. So probably 12 inches long and nine or 10 inches wide. So quite big. And this page, this, this part of the page has a few lines of text, figure uh, 52, and then four images uh, of snowflakes under magnification. Uh, and so these are in the style of late 18th, early 19th century scientific diagrams. So they're idealized snowflakes, trying to give types of snowflakes as they might uh, exist if you kind of perfected them under a microscope. What they look like are different kinds of crystalline structures. So there's the kind of symmetry you would expect from a perfect snowflake. And so there's some lines intersecting, kind of three sets of lines with different kind of pokey things coming out in different arrangements. And then as you go across from left to right, there's four of them. And then the one furthest to the right is just a set of rhombuses kind of arranged in a circular fashion. One of the reasons we chose this image, uh, this this model for the exhibition, just like we chose the, the eclipse of the moon, is that there these are things that you can't, that no one can see on their own with just human eyesight. That you need a technology. We don't usually think of a microscope as assistive technology, but it's something that is uh, allowing you to see or experience something you wouldn't be able to without that technology. And it's allowing you to navigate the world in a way you wouldn't be able to without it. And so in that sense, we wanted to include this as kind of trying to get people to think a little differently about what it means to look at an image, to read a book, and the kind of senses and technology that are involved in that. May I just add something? One of the things that I think is really neat about both of these pages as well is that they also kind of highlight, and we hope for people who visit the pop-up ex- exhibits and, and or print these objects at home, they also highlight something about the difference the differences between visual and tactile reading. So there's a great example from a 19th century reader who with visual impairments who talks about trying to read a page that has a kind of stick figure of a dog. And and he talks about how ridiculous it is to think that a stick figure of a dog for a blind person would represent a dog. So there is also, I think, a kind of wonderful tension in these images between thinking about how you might, in a simplified way, represent something visually versus the way that you would represent it tactily. I'm sure for the you know student with visual impairments 
who probably has experience with dogs, the stick figure of the dog bears no resemblance to the tactile experience of knowing, you know, his or her favorite pet. And so I feel like that's a really, you know, wonderful illustrative way of of really um, pushing at the kind of limitations of thinking about translating visual representations for tactile reading. And along those lines, the sun, I think, in the eclipse of the moon is a perfect example of that, where you have a circle with lines radiating out from the edges, which is a familiar and has been a familiar icon for the sun for many, many years, but has no indexical relationship to the experience of the sun for someone with low vision or or no vision. And so one of the things that we and I think are really interesting about these objects is how there there's a tension, like Sarah's saying, between wanting to communicate the kind of visual language for the world into a tactile medium, but then also the ways that they're trying to accommodate and kind of meet tactile readers where they are with the material form of the the book. And so they spend a lot of time with paper makers and, and printers trying to kind of make paper that holds the letters better, that's easier to read, working with the foundry to kind of get the get a more durable and harder movable type that will push into the paper better. And so a lot, some of that tactile experiences are things that we really wanted to bring out in this exhibition that you you have no access to if you're looking at it, especially if you can't see a screen or it's very difficult to see a screen, you obviously have no access to that. And so we're tr- really trying in this exhibition and this project to, to bring out those that tension between the, the kind of visual form that's inscribed in these and the, the tactile medium itself. So you've alluded to an exhibition. We're looking at a website. Mm-hmm. What exactly is Touch This Page? Yeah, so Touch This, Touch this Page is a multi-site, multi-local, we, we use different words to talk about it, but it's a, it's a exhibition that has existed. It, when it opened, it was at four locations in Boston. Uh, it's moved now, so it's been at the Watertown Public Library. It's been at, uh, it's at NYU, and it will be going to a different NYU campus across the river in Brooklyn and to Mount Holyoke in the spring of 2020. And it's organized around six of these objects. Five of them are in this raised alphabetic form called Boston Line Type, uh, which we've just been looking at, talking about. And one is in a, a form called Moon Type, which is sounds more mythical than it actually is, uh, named after William Moon. And that is a, a simplified alphabetic form. So it's trying to take take the alphabet and make it easier, more a little more legible tactilely. And so the exhibition is really it's presenting these 3D printed objects, asking people to encounter them tactilely, and then providing a story through these six objects and giving some contextual information about each one and the people that used it uh, to get people to think about what are the senses of reading? How do we read? What does it mean to, to use different senses as you're reading? Yeah, just to 
kind of amplify what what Dave was talking about at the end. One of the things that we were hoping to do was actually to use these objects. There is preservation and an access imperative having to do with these 19th century books. But in a way, this is really a public humanities project about getting people to think about the ways in which reading is almost always a multisensory act. And we often think about it as a visual act, but we really wanted to kind of foreground that multisensory nature for people who don't necessarily think about how much it matters to them, the way that their phone actually feels while they're while they're reading on it, or they don't necessarily think about anymore. I think we people used to think about like, how does the magazine feel? How, you know, I like this particular texture of the pages of these books. That's a very familiar line, you know, certainly for book historians, but even for people in the 20th century. But we wanted people to think about how even digital forms have those kinds of tactile experiences when you when you press on a button on your phone, uh, you know, there are features in some phones, for example, that make your phone vibrate because you want to have a kind of tactile experience. And so we wanted people to think a little bit more about the fact that even in a even in a digital world, we're not necessarily moving away from the other senses, even though we don't necessarily credit them in the way that we did in the past. So there are multiple levels to the exhibition. One, you can just sort of follow the six panels around if you're visiting in person and read them or listen to the audio or read the Braille and and read a story about reading as a multisensory act through this kind of 19th century history in which Samuel Gridley Howe and other people who are working with raised print Roman letters were trying to, we pitch it as kind of like a proto-universal design. Like they were really trying to get this form that that could be like the form that made reading accessible to everyone. And then there's sort of boxes below that that tell a more intricate story that Dave was talking about, about disability history. And one of the, you know, one of the things that we wanted to balance in the exhibition was the inevitable frustration at trying to read these tactile forms. Uh, They're quite difficult to learn, uh, and definitely you're not going to be able to make out more than a couple letters uh, the first time you you read them. And so we wanted to balance that frustration that comes with learning any new alphabet, whether visual or tactile, with the kind of joy and, and love people had for these objects when they used them every day and learned the system. And kind of giving voice to the experience of uh, people with the, with different kind of visual experiences in the in the 19th century and so the the way the physical exhibition works is the objects are in these boxes and there's a panel above each box that has some of the more general story about Samuel Gridley Howe and the creation of these objects and then uh, you can reach into the box uh, feel the object and then uh, if when you open, you can either, if you're listening to the audio, you can listen to it or open the box and there's um, Braille in the box that explains it and then some ink uh, printed captions that give a more minute description of what the object is and then often a vignette of someone, uh, often a graduate from Perkins that that, used, that describes using these objects. And, you know, one of them is Helen Keller reading Hamlet. Another is a graduate named Benjamin Bowen using the Bible uh, and kind of everything in between. So the, the the other thing I wanted to say is the exhibition has gone up at the uh, these locations, but 
we also really wanted to make it available to anyone that has access to a 3D printer. And so all the text from the exhibition is on touchthispage.com and all the models are there to download. And so, you know, we put up this kind of professionally manufactured exhibition, but we produced it in a way that, you know, if you have a classroom in college or high school or even elementary school, you can print these objects, bring them into class uh, and work through them, or you could you know, set up a little display in the hallway, wherever, wherever you may be, and really take advantage of the fact that there are so many 3D printers out there now um, that people have not uh, used 3D printers in a way to really maximize how they can provide access to uh, so much information and, and uh, material that that exists in these kind of hard to reach places. The last thing that I wanted to say about the exhibit is that we really work to make it maximally accessible. So in in person, you can visit. It's the exhibit is wheelchair height, but also like people of various different kinds of ability can come and experience it. There's an audio. There's an audio track that you can listen to if you visit and don't read Braille, um, which is there's actually uh, this minority of people who are visually impaired read Braille. So I think we imagine it as a more accessible form um, than it is because education around Braille should be better, <laughs> but it isn't necessarily as widespread. One other thing that I think is kind of neat about the exhibit is that in the 19th century, people really resisted adopting Braille because they thought it would separate people with with uh, blindness and low vision from the rest of the population. But one thing that I think the exhibit really highlights is how great Braille is, <laughs> because once you try these 19th century forms, you think actually they're really quite difficult to discern. And then there's Braille right next to it. And I think that the pairing of those things really highlights why it is that in the 20th century, Braille was much more universally adopted in the U.S., given that some of our listeners will have access only to the uh, website, touchthispage.com, I think it's worth noting that you have very thoughtfully integrated audio files throughout that website, so you get that full sensory experience through that digital interface. So we have this sort of traveling exhibition. We have this, this rich website, multimedia website. What's the origin story? Where did this come from? You know, I guess somewhat cheekily, I would say that I I saw Dave at the bar at C19. I knew he was working on these objects as well. He also had a, a real fascination with Boston line type books. And so we were already friends and I, I bought him a drink and I, I twisted his arm in part because I thought like, this is a neat thing that I would like to do, but also something that I cannot and and would not do on my own um and so <laughs> may, I, I don't think he has regrets now but i but i for a while i would you know uh, since this has been a, a tremendously labor-intensive project i think you know began as a kind of like exciting you know conversation at a conference and has turned into a multi-year many 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 hour uh <laughs> um collaborative project yeah and i think the that's the the proximate origin of of the the project itself. But I know Sari and I have had the same experience of of encountering these objects for the first time, and they're such incredible and provocative books and pages that when you encounter them, it you can't get them out of your mind. And so it it's really 
for me, it's been one of the most powerful moments in in an archive is is encountering these and really trying to think, well, how can I tell these stories? How can I do justice to these these amazing materials that took many years to just process and think, well, how, like, what is this doing? Why was it made the way it was? What, and then how can we provide a story and experience with these objects that will resonate with people? Because, you know, one of the things that we talked about in the, was it the Nittany Lion or whatever hotel bar it was, it was. in, <laughs> in uh, at Penn State, exactly, is the frustration at giving conference papers about these objects. There being so much excitement in the room about them and how disappointing the images that you project are and and what a disservice it does to them, to these objects, to, to have this kind of flat, grainy, poorly lit kind of two-dimensional view of them on a screen that does kind of perpetuate some of the the very problems that they're the objects themselves are trying to to address in the kind of inaccessibility and kind of visual visual dominance of, of printing and and now projecting so i think from the bar there was a lot of discussions about how to how to use technology that's already widespread to distribute um, some kind of tactile experience with these with these objects I wanted to also say that the for me the longer origin story really begins at the library company, which is one of the reasons why it is so exciting to kind of be here talking with you about this. I had a fellowship in 2010, and I was talking to Jim Green about my interest in disability history, and he said, "Oh, we have this collection of raised print materials." And so for me, that that first encounter in the archive, which was as Dave said, so powerful, was was with those collections from the Zimmerman collection just scraps of paper in which in which different forms of raised print these are basically scraps uh, in which people are trying to experiment with different forms of raised print and and I didn't know what I was looking at and what I was touching and it took a long time as Dave said to really so if that's 2010 I, I also couldn't get them out of my head this conversation was 20. 15, 16, 2016, it must have mm-hmm. been. But we had talked about it before because we actually met at the Antiquarian Society, which is how I knew that that Dave was working on these in 2014. So it's like a it's a long germinating process. And the you know the other thing I wanted to say about them is not just the difficulty accessing them visually through digital photography, which is a not a good way of accessing these objects, but they're also really difficult even in an archive, because the preservation imperative that comes with 19th century objects is really at odds with this idea of experiencing these objects in the ways that they were meant to be experienced, which is to say, to figure out how they work tactily really requires, you know, like pawing at these pages of 19th century books, which is really the opposite of the way that we often think about handling rare materials. And so we wanted also to think about digital forms that would make these objects accessible to people in a way that they didn't have to feel anxious about interacting with them. So as I was listening to your response, I'm getting a sense of just the long lifespan of this project and the amount of labor that went into it. I'm I'm really curious to know how you managed it. You both have day jobs. Sorry, I think you actually have three. (laughs) I'm, I'm curious to know, who else did you work with? Who were your allies, your partners, your interlocutors? This project really wouldn't have been possible without a, 
a huge number of people, I feel like, uh, who who were really generous with their time and also with their ideas and, and with some material support as well. First, I think the Perkins School for the Blind, which... Uh, is a hugely important institution. It, it is the place that Boston Line Type comes from. It's We really were working from their archives. So Kim Charlson, Jen Hale, and Jen Arnett are the three folks there that we worked most closely with. And they were just amazing in terms of both providing us access to their materials, collaborating with us about thinking about which of the pages we were going to display. <laughs> Kim Charlson actually came out all the way out like to this suburb with us at one point to make sure that the fabricators that we were using were <laughs> were actually building it in a way that was accessible. So I feel like, you know, in terms of, you know, partnerships that have been important, that was a, a huge partnership, as well as the, certainly the enabling engineering students and, and Waleed Malise, who is the faculty member um, in engineering, who who helped us, and Dan Cohen, who's the dean of libraries at Northeastern. So we had this first started working with Perkins. We realized we don't know anything about 3D printing, so we need some people that can help us with that. So we added the enabling engineering team. And once we started to develop some actual prototypes, we wanted to get help and feedback on how to tell the story in a broadly accessible way. And so we really with, I think it speaks to the power of these, these documents and the story that it was very easy to assemble a team of kind of very high powered uh, humanities scholars from, from across history and disability studies and English to help us think through these problems. So we had this great team of humanities advisors. We had Rachel Adams, uh, Mara Mills, Robert McCruer, Ben Reese, uh, Kathy Kudlick, Georgina Klieg, and, and Kim Charlson, who we already mentioned, all generously providing time and, and energy to look at materials we were writing, to talk through different problems with us, and uh, put together a, an exhibition that that would have you know, a scholarly heft who would be able to engage some of the issues that are at the forefront of disability studies, disability history, material culture, while also having, uh, being kind of maximally accessible, not just in terms of the physical layout of the exhibition, but also kind of conceptually and, and intellectually and kind of just linguistically accessible. And we brought them together for a symposium that we hosted in April of 2019. And I think the symposium speaks to both, you know, how many different kinds of people were already invested in the project that we had engineers and librarians and scholars in English and history and disability studies. But also we had archivists come. We had folks from really different corners of the university that you wouldn't necessarily see in the same room together. Um, and that was, I think, one of the most exciting things was that in part because we had built this with people from such different areas, we then also, that symposium was called Touch This Page, Disability Access and the Archive. And it drew people together from the American Printing House for the Blind, from there's a disability archives group, 
there were other, you know, book historians, other kinds of historians, engineers came and talked to us about different kinds of contemporary technologies for tactility. So it really was just such a generative conversation. We feel grateful to our partners for helping us build a story that really could draw all of those different interests. When you have this many partners, it really is a, a communal effort. How does this fit into your promotion file? So that that is a great question. And, you know, it really began as a passion project. And, and we wanted to do something really neat um, and innovative and different. And I didn't really begin necessarily with that in mind, um, which is maybe a sort of odd thing to say for somebody who was on tenure track. I mean, I'm now tenured, but was not tenured at the time. I think, I mean, I, to be completely honest, I felt already pretty secure in terms of the publications that I had. So this seemed like a kind of public facing project that we could pursue because certain benchmarks had already been met. And I think that that to be completely honest, was was pretty important. But I do think that universities are interested in public-facing scholarship, and they are interested in things that, that get the humanities out to a broader swath of people and, and are able to translate it. There just isn't necessarily, I think, as you said yourself in, in your introduction, and I know it's sort of part of the award, there isn't necessarily a good structure for for honoring that as people go up for tenure and promotion. But it actually has then worked out that um, we have an article coming out in PMLA that's about this project. Thanks to the library company, we have this award. And those are things that are valued in tenure and promotion. But it's not how this began. And so, you know, when you ask that question, I feel like, of course, I was thinking about tenure and promotion the whole time, but this didn't necessarily fit in a clear way, which, but we were just excited about doing it. Yeah, for me, it, you know, when Sari first came to me with the idea, I had just started this job. And so all of this was, seemed very far from what my new job in a map collection was. Like there was, you know, I'd been writing about and thinking about some maps that were made and that made it into this project, but this was totally extracurricular at that point. But it's, you know, really grown into something that the Harvard Library has really supported and been really interested in and and valued. So, and they, you know, generously donated some space to host part of the symposium and host the exhibition. And so, it's it's been surprising to me how how something that started as a kind of uh, weird goal and and yeah passion project to to tell these stories has become more valued um, in ways that we really couldn't have imagined and part of that is the through the partnerships that we've developed that having people contributing ideas and skills and labor to the project from engineering from other libraries uh, from kind of disability advocacy has really made it that much more accessible to and kind of interesting to people um, outside of our our kind of niches and and that that I think has has really helped help the project's kind of promotional features. I guess I should say that there is one aspect of this that came earlier that is clearly uh, something that went into my tenure and promotion file which is that Northeastern has a very generous grant called a tier one grant that specifically asks people to work with other 
co- so with other colleges within the university. So in partnering with the libraries and the College of Engineering, I was able to secure a pretty big grant that that internally registered. So maybe my external reviewers had no idea what the grant was, but internally it, it did mean something for tenure and promotion that I had secured that. And I did think that it would read quite well internally. Um, that's not the reason why we did it. That is something that I happened to kind of learn about after we had embarked on the project, but it did come earlier than, for example, the article um, or some of these other kinds of benchmarks that we're talking about. This is a project that really traverses a number of different fields. Material culture, book history, disability histories, and of course, the digital humanities. Where are you sort of making your intervention? What do you want to see people taking from this and maybe applying to their own work? The digital humanities, because it is so structured by the flat screen, um, because it's interested in things like data visualization, has actually made conversations even more about visual experience and visual transmission of knowledge. And one of the things, and I think that's inadvertent, and one of the things that we hope that our project really does is get people to think about, you know, well, what are the other digital technologies out there that actually could give people experiences to to information, to archival objects through other senses? And not in a way, I mean, this is something that that both Dave and I have thought a lot about, not in a way that's translational. I think that's the way that this often happens, is that people imagine that you can kind of translate information between the senses. And we really want to emphasize that, in fact, touching these objects is not the same as seeing them. That, for example, when you look at a page that has a stray ink mark on it, that ink mark, your your eye immediately kind of screens that out. But when you touch a page that has like a stray raised mark on it, that's actually the kind of thing that you're that tactically you seek out and you want to make sense of. And so it's actually something quite different is happening there between the senses. And we want to highlight that and really push people to think a little bit more about how it might be different. If we if we really sort of thought about the senses as having their own uh avenues into knowledge. The other thing that I think for me has been really important is the disability history part of this. Um, I think that we tend to think of disability history as a very niche. I I don't think of it that way. (laughs) Disability historians and disability studies scholars and activists don't think of disability as being niche. But I think, you know, it's changing. But socially, culturally, we often think like, oh, that, you know, that just represents a small group of people. Actually, disability most of us have some kind of connection, whether personal or in our immediate friends and family, to people with disabilities. And and these histories in the 19th century really were histories that people from both sides of the Atlantic were tremendously inspired by. And so we really wanted to say this disability history is not niche. It's actually, when you tell the story differently, quite central to questions that we all have about the ways that we read, about the ways that we process information. That was very true in the 19th century when figures like Dickens when he came over to Boston, he really wanted to go to the Perkins School for the Blind. The same is true of Wordsworth. The same is true of a Hawthorne. Thoreau applied for a job at Perkins. His reference was Emerson. So I think Longfellow was also really involved. 
in in the Perkins School for the Blind. And so I think that we we think of these spaces as these small institutions, but they weren't. And one of the things that for me that I'm quite passionate about is really getting people to recenter these kinds of disability histories in our histories more broadly and not to think of them as sort of small stories that are off to the side because they weren't in the 19th century and I think they aren't today, but that is a kind of um, stigmatizing, exclusive, um, and really damaging move that that we maybe sometimes make unintentionally. Part of the intervention we can think about is like Sari and I coming together on the project. So for me, you know, my interest in these objects was really about material culture, kind of epistemology, the senses, and disability studies and history was something that, you know, I had to deal with in order to tell those stories. Like, I didn't really understand it that well and was like, it wasn't the intervention I was trying to make. And working with Sari has been really great because I think we've been able to kind of contribute to each other's work into this project, kind of interventions that come at the intersection of those places. And so one of the things I think is really exciting about this project is being able to combine, you know, the attention that comes in book history and material culture to embodied experience with books with the attention in disability studies to the varieties of embodied experience. And to see, and so part of the intervention there is to see that the shared interest in a set of kind of epistemological problems that generally I don't think either field is really uh, has been attuned to is that actually these things that like Sarah saying seem might seem niche or, or quite different are are very intellectually compatible and I think we were both surprised that to a certain extent it, then how the, the digital humanities became another kind of intervention in there like neither one of us set out saying we're going to make an intervention of the digital humanities and I think sometimes still feel a little sheepish about <laughs> the idea that we would because it's not our field it's not it's not what neither one of us would identify as a digital humanist, I don't think, in any in any capacity. But we think, you know, that some of that intervention can be at the intersection of those those fields come together and being able to work together on kind of shared intellectual uh, problems. Well, I I could ask you guys questions for the whole day, uh, but I want to give you one last very <laughs> softball question. What's next for Touch This Page? Well, first, just to begin, uh, the website is not going anywhere. <laughs> so uh, we really hope that people will take the opportunity to download these objects to give us feedback on them. We are always open to and looking for people to say, actually, you know, if you move this thing, as we as just happened at NYU, when we had the launch exhibit, somebody said, you know, maybe if you put the audio file in a different place on the on the website, it would be easier on a smartphone to access it. So that's the kind of feedback that we would love to hear. And we are, I think, in the process of applying for money to take it beyond the Boston area. We would love to have this kind of conversation with people around the country. And then finally, we've talked a bit with Waleed Malise uh, in the engineering department at Northeastern. The Enabling Engineering Group is a group that's interested in engineering interventions into disability-related issues. That's why we partnered with them, although the idea of the humanities was quite foreign to them. But we are interested, I think, in continuing to work with them and maybe think thinking a little bit more about how to make this technology a little bit better, a little bit easier to use, so that actually it's not just seven objects from the archive, but that that more people can kind of think about 
ways to make tactile forms accessible. And this is a disability issue, but it's also an issue that has to do with other forms of 3D objects in the archives. So so I don't want to say that even though our project is, is located from and draws, I, I don't think we said this, draws really heavily on the expertise of people with disabilities. I think that's actually really important to us that that there's an expertise in the community of individuals with blindness and low vision in tactility that really should be at the center of conversations about tactility. But we're interested in thinking about how to how to make these processes a little less cumbersome so other people can do them as well. Like Siri's saying, we're hoping to have more people host the exhibition, find some more money to make more boxes and panels to send across the country. And you know, I think also excited for other people to remix and kind of recreate or kind of create different versions or offshoots of this and, and also ways to suggest improvements. So, you know, one of the simplest kind of changes that a suggestion we've gotten for the printing is that if we print the objects vertically instead of horizontally, they're much smoother, uh, which was, you know, again, I don't know anything about printing. So it, it's uh, I'm, I've learned some, and I've learned how to make models and things, but I have not done the actual uh, sending to the 3D printer. So there's a lot of room for experimentation and trial and error with making these kind of objects and, and kind of working with archival materials in this kind of trans-mediated way. And so I think what's next is, is for us, it's trying to get this exhibition in more places in more people's minds in order to inspire more work at this kind of intersection of DH, material culture, and, and uh, disability studies. That's great. And this is such an inspirational project. And I'm delighted that we were able to offer you this award. And I hope that it sort of helps you to continue to advocate for it. Thank you both for coming in and joining us for our annual dinner and, and, and sitting down here to speak with me today. Thank you so, so much for having us. It's been just a pleasure. And for me, it especially so since my first encounter with these was in the library company. So to come back really feels like a kind of homecoming and a full circle. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. For me, it's kind of the inverse. So I've always wanted to come to the library and company and never had the had the opportunity. So it's, it's really wonderful to be here. Let's make a habit of it.